0: Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called David McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Plus every single borough order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash acast. That's 15% off at borough.com slash acast. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
0: How you doing there? It is podcast time and fairness, what a weekend. What a weekend of intrigue. Boris Johnson, the Tories, the Northern Irish Protocol, the UK economy, our biggest trading partner. But when I say our biggest trading partner, what I mean is our biggest import trading partner, whereas in exports, we don't really export that much to the UK at all anymore. But we do export agriculture and we do depend on the UK a lot. For Tourism to very labor intensive industries. So, we're going to talk about the UK economy in a little while. The fallout of the end of Johnson. Look forward to the baton change and who's going to come up next. And apart from that, I am sitting here, John, still in Beirut looking out onto the Mediterranean.
2: Good man, you're on that eternal It's like Bob Dylan on the eternal
0: tour. I know. What's <laughs> what you're like? Well, I tell you what, it's a funny thing. I'm going to tell you all about Lebanon when I get home. Okay, yeah, amazing country. Full of contrasts. This morning, this morning, I talked to a doctor in a UNICEF-financed hospital here. And we forget what it is like the day-to-day trying to get medicine, trying to get uh, proper electricity. Can you imagine trying to run a hospital on electricity generators that cut out every now and then? And you've got kids on life support machines, you've got all sorts yeah. of things. So it it is extraordinary. What's the COVID situation
2: like over there?
0: Uh I don't think they're worried that much about it. I think in the in the in terms of everything else that's hit this country, I think COVID in the beginning was a massive problem for them because yeah. it closed down the economy, and the economy is entirely dependent on tourism. And obviously, uh once you get COVID, you get no tourists. Someone's getting get no tourists, they have no hard currency. And their problem has always been the fact that dollars are so scarce. They have hyperinflation at the moment. Their currency is down about 97%, as I said. And nurses are making $120 a month. Doctors are making $180 right. a month. So all their nurses and doctors are emigrating. So it's not only that right. like they don't. Yeah, make yeah. so, I mean, so you can see what's going on here is this extraordinary implosion of the society and yet the place functions. It's really, really weird. So yesterday I was at an exchange. About those old Bureau de change things in Ireland that now you never yeah, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. right? But the only discussion wasn't the fact that the lira, it was at one stage, 1,500 liras to the dollar. It's now 30,000. That happened. <sighs> Whoa, really? Yeah, that happened over a, a period of a few months. Few months. I, 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 how can
2: you actually deal with that as a society, as a, as somebody who's, who's trying to bring up a family and all that kind of stuff? How can uh, you actually survive on that side? Well,
0: how they survive that kind of money. is the, the Lebanese are very much like the Irish. They have a massive, massive diaspora abroad, massive, right? So, for example, right. there are 12 million Brazilian Lebanese alone, there's only 6 million Lebanese. Right. There's 12 okay. million in Brazil alone. In Mexico, there are millions. All around Latin America, there are millions. Right? Of course, more recently in Germany, and of course in North America and Canada, and they're sending money home, and they're coming home with wads of money. And that's the whole way it works. It's like it's like emigrants' remittances kept Ireland going in the 50s, and they're keeping yeah. Lebanon going now in the 2020s. Well, how how long can that last for, though? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I I would have thought it couldn't last this long. Uh, It's been going on now, this crisis, for about two years. But it continues to go on, and the place continues to eke out a living. But yesterday, I was in this Bureau de Chans, and I can tell you, you know those machines that you – I've never heard the whir of money before. It's (laughs) the whir of the machines that count the thousands and thousands of liras. But the conversation outside, it wasn't about the lira. And this is the fascinating thing. It was about the rise of the dollar and the fall of the euro against the dollar. And this is what was annoying them because the fellows I I was talking to had just come back and got money from their cousins in Germany and they'd fully expected the euro to have about a 10 or 15% premium over the dollar, but it's now almost a parity. And of course, by the time the Bureau de change guy takes his cut, they're actually getting less than the dollar. And it's a fascinating story, the rise in the dollar in the last couple of weeks, actually, John. Uh, and the idea that the dollar is now so strong, maybe stronger than at any point in the last 20 years against the euro. And again, interestingly, coming back to the inflation discussion, and don't worry, we are going to be talking about Boris Johnson in a second, but coming back to the inflation discussion, do you remember we were saying in the podcast, Look, don't be worried about inflation, don't panic. Yes, be worried, but don't panic sure. because this is a transitory phenomenon. And yet lots and lots of people are saying, no, I told you so. It's stagflation. It's all to do with the printing of money in America. And ultimately, America will end up like a big version of Lebanon, right? That was the, the sort of spiel yeah, from yeah, the yeah. Armageddon. Yeah, it it's bullshit, okay? Basically, what you're seeing now is all the leading indicators across commodities, across bond yields, across the prices of everything that were going through the roof two months ago are now going through the floor, right? And why is that, though? Is that people are realizing that they should not listen to us, obviously, about two months ago?: and Well, of
2: course, of course. They're
0: actually realizing that, you know, you cannot have inflation rising permanently, or you cannot have stagflation at a time when the economies are contracting, central banks seem to be on top of the issue. But more importantly, when bond prices and bond yields are saying, hold on a second, you know what? It's much more likely the American economy slows down quickly and deflates quickly than inflates quickly. And that has always been our position, that basically the inflation we're seeing is a product of one, energy price spikes, which are now falling, two, commodity price spikes, which are now falling, three, food price spikes, which are now falling. And of course, ex-Ukraine and Russia, they're also a function of this extraordinary prolonged COVID impact on the global economy. So this idea yeah. that we're going from having put the economy to sleep and been locked down to inflation with no bit in the middle. And of course, it's back to that thing we talked about ages ago, that the supply of the global economy hasn't kept up with the demand for the global economy. The supply chains are choked, but over time, those supply chains will loosen, the economy will rebalance, and the neurotic fear of inflation that was screamed in the headlines about a month or two ago, and we were saying, no, chill your boots, have actually, has actually abated. And it's much more likely now that A, stagflation is not going to be an issue, number one. And B, right. disinflation is probably going to be the theme of the next couple of months. Not deflation, but disinflation. Yeah,
2: okay, hang on there a sec, Mike. Just, just explain the difference between disinflation and deflation.
0: So deflation is when prices absolutely fall, right? So we go into a period of falling prices. Now, that is unbelievably tricky because what you tend to get then is what's called debt deflation. So you get a combination of debts that were built up in the past at a time when prices fall. Now, what does that do to the economy? It means that your ability to generate income, to pay the debts that you had in the past or incurred in the past yeah. falls because prices are falling. So it means that what happens is the economy gets caught in a debt brace that because your income is falling, i.e. deflation, and because prices are falling, i.e. deflation, your ability to yeah. pay existing debt is contracted and the economy gets completely stuck. And this was, if you're really interested in, there's a nerdy paper, John, 1933, <clears throat>
2: Irving I'm fab, Fisher. Yeah, i must dig stick that one out.
0: Stick that one out. Uh, for those econo, uh, macroeconomists, historians, and uh, nerds out there, Irving Fisher... Give
2: was, me a summary of it then.
0: <laughs> so basically the summary is Irving Fisher was one of the world's most famous economists in the 1920s and early 1930s. Very brilliant mind, made the fatal mistake of believing his own propaganda and not seeing the actual... Fall in the stock markets as being a turning point in the world, and continued to what they call buy the dip. And you can only buy the dip if you believe it is a dip. He continued to buy the dip. He lost a fortune. Uh, He should have been told maybe the most appropriate analogy wasn't buy the dip, but don't try and catch a falling knife, otherwise you will cut your hand off, which is actually what happened. (coughs) So, but 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 he was he was also a very unusual character. He 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 was into physical fitness and vegetarianism and all sorts of unusual stuff. Right. So
2: he was ahead of the game in in that way?
0: In in one way, but he wrote this seminal paper in the 30s to try and explain what was happening in the United States after the Great Crash, which is why the economy was not recovering, as they imagined. And he alighted on this idea of debt deflation, that basically what was happening is the more people who paid down debt, the more the price of assets fell. The more the price of assets fell, the more their income fell, and the less likely they were to actually be able to pay down debt. And he arrived at the conclusion that the person who tries to pay down debt quickest, because they actually precipitate a fall in aggregate prices, will end up ending up in more debt, not less debt. Unusual, but it's mathematically quite pure. And it kind of works. So that's deflation. Disinflation is where the increase in prices begins to fall. So inflation goes from 10% to 7%. So prices are still rising by 70%, but they're just not rising by 10%. So that's disinflation. When your rate of inflation Mm -hmm. goes from 10 to 2, it means that prices are continuing to rise, but the pace of that rise actually is decelerating. And that's where I think we are going over the coming year or so. So that's that's a good thing. I think it's broadly a good thing. It's broadly a good thing. And within that, I come back to what we were talking about last week, the pendulum swing Will swing towards wages away from profits. If that is to happen, so you get disinflation at a time when income swings towards wages and away from profits, I think yeah. it could, we could end up in net-net not a bad situation. Although there's loads and loads of imponderables, right? There's loads and loads of things that can go wrong. But I'm saying the central case doesn't look as terrifying as it did, let's say, six or eight weeks ago. And I think that was always our central case. It was like, don't panic. Let's just see how things yeah. pan out give things a little bit of time. Uh, And I think that's what's happening now.
2: But we still have this issue of Putinflation and the energy crisis.
0: Yeah, but again, you see, what happens is that energy is always demand-driven at the end of the day, right? If you have a spike in energy prices, and if that spike leads to a dramatic slowdown in countries that import energy, then what you will find is that energy prices will respond more to demand than supply. So I'll give you a great example of that, which is in the 1970s and in the 1980s. Every time there was a spike in energy prices, so let's say 73, 1979, those two great examples, right? What actually happened was the increase in energy prices was so dramatic and so debilitating that it profoundly destroyed demand in the West, the energy consuming countries, not the energy producing countries. So what you got was a spike in oil prices was followed by a collapse in oil prices. And of course, the collapse in oil prices and commodity prices that happened in the 80s was probably the main reason that Gorbachev and the Soviet Union collapsed and fell apart. Because the Soviet Union was using oil revenues to prop up its sclerotic economy. As oil prices fell in the 1980s, down to a low of $17 a barrel, that's also coincident with the hot time that the Soviet Union falls apart. So basically what happens is oil prices go up initially on the shock, but they can only be sustained if the economies that are importing oil continue to grow dramatically. But we can't grow dramatically if the price of petrol is going through the roof. Why? Because the price of petrol is the price of energy. And as the price of energy increases, the real income of energy importers decreases. And as our income decreases, our economies slow down. So that's what I was always arguing from the the beginning about two or three months ago. And that's what I think is what's happening right now. So there's a sort of an end of, sort of a chill your boots on the inflation side of things. Don't panic. Try and see for the next three or four quarters What's likely to happen? Look at the leading indicators. The leading indicators are telling you that, hold on a second, inflation is not necessarily going to be tomorrow's problem. It was yesterday's problem, but it's much more likely that tomorrow's problem is going to be a recession than a spike or a prolonged spike in inflation. And I suppose that's just the way things go.
2: So just one last thing then on this. The central banks and the Fed and the ECB are going to still pursue a policy of rising interest rates?
0: Well, if you, if you actually look at what's been happening, the Fed has been trying to bully the ECB into disinflation. Okay, and I'll explain what's happening, right?
1: The Go Fed on, has now. gone
0: very hawkish because American inflation is not just energy driven. American inflation is now in the system, in the United States. But there is a mechanism through which the United States deflates and it's the following, right? The Americans raise interest rates rapidly, which they've done, the dollar rises rapidly. When the dollar rises rapidly, the price of all imported goods in the United States falls. Now, the United States has been running a trade deficit for the last 30 years. So it imports yeah. much more than it exports. So the rising dollar has a profound disinflationary impact on the United States. And it can happen quite quickly. So that is the mechanism through which the United States monetary policy forces down inflation. And that is happening. But what the Americans were trying to do, I think, was they were trying to bully the ECB into following suit rapidly, which would have Mm. reduced, this is the interesting thing, it would have reduced the dollar's rise against the euro. It would have forced the Europeans to actually shoulder much more of global disinflation than the Americans. And the Europeans have kind of said, well, maybe not. So what's actually happening is a game between these central banks and the the telltale. So was that a smart
2: move by the ECB? Then I think
0: so. Yeah, because what's happening in Europe <laughs> is we know that those energy prices are much more vulnerable to Putin, right? Yeah. But in terms of the actual slack, in terms of the actual tightness of the European economy, we know that there are still large levels of unemployment in many areas of Europe. We know that the leading indicators are suggesting that there's still a lot of slack in the economy. We know what's called the output gap in Europe hasn't narrowed dramatically. So the ECB is probably right to sort of drag its heels. Now, that would have pissed off the Americans no end, but this is all happening behind the scenes because what the ECB has kind of said to the Americans is, look, you really have the endemic inflation problem. You sort it out. We're not going to help you. And of course, it helps the Europeans if the dollar is rising against the euro because it makes the European Union much more competitive, right? So the eurozone... And then you take a country like Ireland, it's a double positive whammy for us because Ireland has this bizarre relationship with the global economy. We do well when Europe is doing reasonably less well and the United States is doing reasonably more well, which sounds bizarre given that we're Europeans, but we're bizarre Europeans. We're Europeans that want America to actually do better than Europe. And the reason is the following. We have this huge American corporate investment in Ireland. So if the euro is falling against the dollar, it means that the price for Americans of doing business in Ireland is falling. It means that investing in Ireland looks even more profitable for them. And it means that their investment Decisions when they're making 50 50 decisions at boardrooms in the yep. United States, they'll say, "Well, look at the matrix here. It's telling us that the uh, investments in the United from the United States to the Ireland are doing really, really well. So we profit dramatically when the euro is falling against the dollar. So what we should say on the podcast is that we go, go, shh, don't say it, don't say, <laughs> don't say a word, don't say a word. It's all going according <laughs> <You>. to plan." <laughs>
1: Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
2: So Mac, apart from all that malarkey going on and inflation, disinflation, deflation, the whole...
0: The dollar, the euro, (laughs) the sneaky (laughs) patties, all that malarkey.
2: Let's take a quick look because we cannot ignore the basket case that is the UK.
0: It's a thing. What of, is going
2: on, actually, man? What's I'm going really,
0: on? I remember. I remember. I said ages ago in the podcast, kind of half tongue in cheek, you know, that you know mm-hmm. Boris Johnson was an Eton peronist, right? Was that what yes. we would see in England under Johnson? Was the sort of chaos we saw in Argentina? It's not that far from the truth. I mean, I know Argentina is much, yeah. much worse, but it's that idea of chaos at the centre and the whole thing. And obviously, now he's gone, right? Now he's gone. Yeah. But the UK has serious, serious structural problems to deal with. Like the first one is the UK is much poorer than it imagines. That's a significant wake up call that has to be articulated to UK policymakers. I think the policymakers know that, right? But it's the politicians don't. Yeah. The second one is it has a huge current account deficit, massive, right? And it has had for years, right? Which means it has to import capital, which means it has to keep its interest rates higher than anywhere else. And there is a okay. chance of what the UK has had periodically, which is sterling crises. Sterling is very, very weak. It's weakened very, very dramatically in the last few weeks. And ultimately, in the very short term in the UK, they have a fragile pound. They have inflation that the Bank of England has targeted as, or at least admitted to, running at 11%, which is very, very high.
2: Yeah. They have,
0: the only way they can bring inflation down is if they have a very, very strong currency, because that bears down on import prices. As I was talking about the United States, Britain is a much smaller economy, and therefore import Mm. prices are a much more significant impact. Because if your currency is falling, the price of everything you're importing is rising. If the price of everything you're importing is rising, your rate of inflation is rising. The only way you can actually stop that as a government is if you either increase taxes dramatically to bear down on domestic growth, or you increase interest rates dramatically, which they won't do. So they're caught in a sort of an intellectual bind. And then, of course, they've got problems. They've got to think about... 4.3 4.3 million people waiting on the NHS and all those other sort of structural problems they yeah, have there. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But is sterling as a currency, I mean, it, it's kind of lost all its integrity at this stage. Yeah. Like well, it's suppose- because gone are, the, gone are the days of sterling. It was always the dollar, sterling, and to a lesser extent, it's the euro. cable,
0: mate. In it's cable, cable, cable. It's the trade between the dollar and sterling. It's called cable because it used to be in a cable. Under the Atlantic, there used to be a cable. And that's how the signals signals went in terms of like your trading cable. Yeah. When I was a young fella in my day when I was working in London, cable, sterling, many decades ago, (laughs) sterling dollar rate was a significant deep exchange rate. When I say deep, it was a very deep market, well traded. It still is, but it's much more of a speculative trade now. It's much less significant if you remember, you know the expression of sterling performance. You know, if you see a football match yes. and how did your man yes. perform, yeah, it was yes. sterling performance. That was yeah. based on the fact that sterling used to be the strongest currency in the world, right? I so always a sterling, thought of sterling moss. Oh, what? Well, sterling moss. <laughs> I actually went to see, I went to see a gig in a place, you know that way in Northern Ireland, the Northerners love a bit of motor car racing, right? They Much do. more than they we do, do it's right? huge
2: up there. And yeah. they,
0: they love their race. They're all petrol heads. And yeah. I remember I went to a charity do in the Culloden Hotel, which is in a place called Coltra, just outside Hollywood in Northern Ireland. And the guest speaker was a very dodgery Sterling Moss. And he was just <laughs> like... And it was almost like Dicky. What was he Rock. talking always, about? It was always like a Dicky Rock show. They were like they were almost like spit me, Dicky. They're throwing their knickers at him. They, they were just. <laughs> that's the great Dickie Rock. Dickie Rock. Yeah, was He Yeah, yeah, Great man.
2: He was a great man.
0: But but Sterling was a bit like Dicky Rock for, for 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 the Northern Petrolheads, particularly women of a certain age of the Northern Petrolheads. Yes, and he was really funny. Actually, he was really he was like on the circuit, but it was just it was a very northern thing to be at. A sort of a charity yeah.
2: to do yeah, yeah, yeah. where
0: the where the where the keynote speaker or the after dinner crumpet is Sterling Moss, but to get back to Sterling, to get back to Britain, right? Britain has this what I would call a trilemma, not a dilemma, a trilemma, mm-hmm. right? Which is yeah, whoever the new Tory boss is, I'm come on to that in a minute, right? Now the interesting thing about the Tories is that typically, if Boris Johnson had been a normal Tory leader. There was no way in the world you'd have a Tory Prime Minister losing his position. They have a 70-seat majority in the Commons. Think about that, right? There's no reason yeah. at all for them to be in fighting. It's huge. There's no major ideological difference within the Tories as there was under Thatcher with Thatcher and Heseltine and all that sort of thing. There's no big ideological difference, right? And they've two years left of a term, of office. So typically, yeah. that would be enough for a Tory government to say, snap out of it. Let's unify. Don't be stupid. But because the Johnson government has been so corrosive and so appalling and so without moral foundation, that's all to do with the fact that Johnson himself is such a dreadful character. But now he's gone. Yes. They have, but they have this, what I would call a trilemma, right? Which is, Tories want to always balance the budget. That's what they always talk about, right? They also want to have low taxes. But now with the Brexit leveling up idea, they want better public services. Now, you can either have two of those three, but you can't have all three. So either you can have low taxes and a balanced budget, but in which case you have low public services, you cut public services, or you can have low taxes and high public services, in which case you don't have a balanced budget, which you have a budget surplus. or sorry, you have a massive budget deficit. Or you can have a balanced budget and expanded public services, in which case you have high taxation. So you can see the trilemma.
2: Unless, of course, they can attract lots of foreign capital.
0: Which That's they the can. the only way out,
2: isn't
0: it? Yeah, but you can't attract foreign capital unless you cut your taxes. Because they cut, cut their capital taxes. Right, and they can't do gotcha. That so unless they engineer huge growth rates of 6 7 8% you cannot square this trilemma so you can either have low taxes a balanced budget or expanded public services you can have two of those three but you can't have all three right that is the fact and they right. won't get high levels of growth in the uk why because they've low levels of productivity And when you've low levels of productivity, you cannot get high levels of growth because ultimately productivity is about output per head. If your output per head is low, your growth per head is low. And if your growth per head is low, is your wage per head is low? If your wage per head is low, you have these persistent regional dilemmas. And I urge some of our UK listeners not to repeat this, but to, to listen closely as we are not British. But we live beside Britain, we analyze Britain, we understand Britain. I listen yes. to, I, I read the FT, I read the Guardian, I listen to the BBC, and every now and then I read the Telegraph, right? Never once have I seen an article that lays it out really clearly and starkly. Sometimes I tell you, Martin Wolf does this in the FT, and very brilliantly, mm. but lays it out very clearly. Look, here's the trilemma, here's the intellectual inconsistency at the heart of Tory government here's what you can do, here's what you can't do, and just level with the British people and tell them, look, these are the facts. Now, I understand politicians should not do this because getting voted in is not always predicated on telling the truth. But ultimately, (laughs) somebody's got to tell them, look, these are the issues ahead of you, right? Whoever takes over from Johnson's got to deal with these things. At the moment, it seems like the only Game They seem to be rhetorically playing is the Thatcherite game, which is that we've got to go back to low taxes. And Mm. all the big beasts of the Tory party are saying that now. But if that's all they can sell, which is low taxes, that only appeals to the Red Trousers Brigade in Surrey and the south east of England, because they're the people who benefit from low taxes because they're rich. But if you have low taxes, you therefore cannot have the public services that you promised as part of the Brexit package to the poorer people in the Midlands and the North of England, because those people need better public services, not worse public services. Now, if you decide, okay, we're going to go for low taxes and better public services, then what you have to accept is a very, very significant budget deficit. Now, how do you finance your budget deficit if you've already got a current account deficit? So you're already borrowing just to stand still. If you decide to actually expand your budget deficit, then you're borrowing yet more. Now, how do you borrow yet more at a time when your currency is weak? Then you have to assume your currency gets weaker still. And the reason it has to get weaker still, John, is that if you're a foreign investor, you will only invest in the UK given all those risks, if the currency is very, very cheap, because the cheap currency will actually make up for all the risk you have to carry. So if you're an American, you'll say, well, okay, I will invest in the UK only if the currency is very weak, because it's got all these attendant risks associated. Mm. So the UK has to be incredibly cheap to make it attractive.
2: So, so could starting turn into the Italian lira of old,
0: Could we go that far? It it could be lucky if it turns into the Italian lira of old. No. (laughs) Seriously, I'm looking at this as a macroeconomist. And what tends typically to happen in political cycles is that when there's all the chaos, remember we called Boris Johnson a chaos monkey?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in a way that was true
0: because it was all about taking away from the fundamental issues in the UK right? So we'd have Brexit and we'd have the protocol and we'd have a, a pretend row with the European Union and fly the flag and the, you know, the, the imperial weights and all that sort of stuff, going back to yes, pounds, shilling yeah. and yeah. pence, <laughs> right? All that stuff, right? But when it comes down to it, somebody has to say, okay, what is the bottom line here? Where are we starting from? And mm. I, I fear that a sterling crisis is on the horizon. Now, by the way, we in Ireland have a lot to be anxious about in a sterling crisis, not because in the old days when there was a sterling crisis, it used to be contagious into our punt and we used to have a crisis following them. The old adage, you know, is when the Brits sneeze, the Irish get a cold, right? It's yeah, not that sort yeah. of contagion, but because Irish companies in agriculture in particular compete with British companies in the UK market. Yeah. So we have to be we have to be aware of that. But if you think about the three issues I pointed out, this inconsistent triplet at the heart of UK policymaking. And if you think about the fragility of Sterling against a background of the American raising interest rates and the global economy being in a sort of a fragile position and the UK sure. needing a huge amount of investment in order to kickstart the economy, but not being able to get the investment because they can't cut corporation taxes simply because they have a budget problem. The only thing that gives in, in that sort of scenario is the exchange rate. And you asked about the Italian lira, but John, if sure. you really look at it truthfully, the liraization of sterling has been happening since the Second World War. Sterling has become progressively, progressively, progressively cheaper. It's still a big currency. Yeah. But it's never been a strong currency. And therefore, the UK has always been highly inflation prone as a result of that. And that's okay. the dilemma that the Bank of England has to wrestle with, the new treasury has to wrestle with, whoever the new chief bottle washer of the Tories has to wrestle with. And also the Tories will be loath to go to the government or sorry, to go to the country uh, anytime sooner. Than two years. So you're gonna have a new leader for the next two years. And that leader has got his or her, I think it's gonna be her in tray pretty well full. Mac, just just one quick question before
2: we go. You know, we talk about the 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 pressure that the UK is under and getting in investment, all that kind of stuff. Am I right in thinking that the UK still owes the EU that exit Brexit money of whatever exactly. it was? I can't remember what it was. Jeez, I couldn't so, is that tell another
0: you. pressure? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I mean, actually, like, on that issue, let's close on this issue because I think it could be another pressure. But what could be an upside, John, is mm. that the new Tory leader, and I think it's going to be a woman called Penny Mordant. Uh, I met her, not because I met her a couple of years ago. I uh, know, but I did meet her a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking You anointed her. her. <laughs> no, but I just I remember thinking, you know, you talk to somebody, and I thought to myself, This is somebody who's got kind of the qualities, not that it takes to kind of bring the Tories together. She was, she seemed to me, I I listened to her and I thought, maybe, you know, given all the macho men there and all the huge male egos, and I just thought maybe this politician, I think she's from the south of England, maybe Southampton around there, maybe Portsmouth around there. And I thought, you know what, maybe she has something. She's the trade secretary,
2: Right. Okay. There's
0: going to be the mother and father of clusterfuck fights, as the Tories always have, because they are yeah, so yeah. nasty, right? So, well, the, the,
2: there's a whole load of them throwing their hat into yeah, the yeah, ring. Though, so, so, the, the so, what I would, say to, season, I would say
0: to all the listeners is just buy your popcorn, sit back, and watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of the soundtrack of that movie, John, the soundtrack oh, yeah. towards Europe may well be let's end here and this is probably okay for us. The soundtrack of that movie may well be much less hysterically Eurosceptical. Mm -hmm. That Johnson was mendacious in the extreme, and part of his theatre was creating this ongoing crisis within Britain when faced with the European Union, trying to tell them that England But it's like Dad's Army, you know, who do you think you're kidding Mr. Hitler sort of stuff, right? And that idea that, you know, Britain was in this phony, foggy war with the European Union and there were bad guys over in the far side of the Channel, that was the soundtrack for the last three years of Johnson. I think that soundtrack's going to change and I think it's going to be much much more civilised. Will it be Mozart? I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure it'll be one of the classics. suppose Beethoven
2: is the anthem.
0: Is it, is it Beethoven, is it?
2: Right. Beethoven okay. is the anthem.
0: So it's more likely to be closer to Beethoven than the Sex Pistols. So I suspect that'll be probably better in terms of background noise. Now, while I have you, it's the summer. You've got a choice. You can sit in your Swiss, hang out, do nothing, have a few pints... Take it handy, or you can use the summer to learn economics with me on Patreon. We have two courses, the courses that I give in Trinity, macroeconomic courses, cycles, booms, busts, history, the history of money, all sorts of good stuff, right? We've got the notes, we've got the reading list, we've got everything. We'll take you through it. A very fine way, if you're going to have a stroll, just put the headphones in and listen and learn economics with me. That's economics with me, patreon.com forward slash David McQuilliams.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir and I'm Kate Spencer and we are the hosts of Forever 35 and today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families.